Good morning, church. Uh, This morning we're reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. This is chapter 5, beginning at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came. He shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Steve. Hey, well, good morning, church. How are we? Awesome. Hey, so uh, I have a confession to make. I want to start there. Uh, I may be very, very attracted to the woman who just gave the shoebox um, announcement. That's actually my wife, Jackie. She and I both are very, very passionate about Samaritan's Purse, that ministry, and just the difference we can make as a church as we're part of that. Well, hey, listen, so we're in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is known as wisdom literature from the Old Testament, and today, as you uh, just heard, the teacher's going to talk about the reality of wealth, and let me just say, it's a conversation nobody in our culture is having. He's going to talk about this, in a, he's just going to have really a raw and an uncensored conversation, and he's going to argue this, he's going to argue that making the accumulation of wealth your ultimate goal, he's just going to argue that that's foolish, that it's empty, that it's futile. And to understand his argument, you have to understand something else about this book. The book of Ecclesiastes is a treatise uh, against what the Bible would call idolatry. Now, an idol is something that uh, can happen when we take a good thing that God has given to us or provided, and we, make, we take that good thing and we make it the ultimate thing. And the book of Ecclesiastes argues over and over and over again that um, when we run to those kinds of things for meaning, for purpose, for identity, that it's just an inadequate foundation to build your life on. And so in this case, uh, the teacher's going to argue that money can be an idol, and he's just going to dismantle the idea that uh, money can offer offer us safety and security. He's just going to point out the foolishness and the futility about. 
Now, uh, we've said many times before here that uh, we make our idols, and then our idols make us bow down to them. In other words, uh, whatever our idols are, they always demand regular sacrifices from us. So, for example, if a woman worships beauty, uh, she's going to die a thousand deaths, right? As she gets older and wrinkles appear. And so what sacrifices will she make? Well, she'll be called to cosmetic surgery, uh, on and on, probably multiple surgeries. And this is true of any, any idol that we serve. Now, in this case, the teacher isn't just talking about wealth. In verse 13, it says that uh, he's observed a grievous evil under the sun. People keep riches to their hurt. And that word keep uh, literally means to hoard or to amass or to store. And so he's really going to go after hoarded wealth here. And let's start in verse 10. He says, He who loves money will never be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This too is vanity or empty or futility. The teacher is simply saying this. He's saying that no matter how much money you make, no matter how much you have stored away, it's never going to feel like enough. Ever. Uh, In fact, he calls this kind of discontent empty, and it's important to understand that Solomon isn't here talking about an amount of money. He's simply talking about the human heart. He's saying, look, when you have a heart that can only feel safe and secure in the presence of a lot of money, there isn't enough. There isn't enough to bring the kind of safety and security that your heart desires. Uh, In other words, when somebody puts their ultimate trust in their bank account, they will never feel like there are enough zeros in their bank account. In fact, there's a reporter who famously asked John Rockefeller once, who, who at the time was the richest man in the world, which million, he asked, that you've earned has been your favorite? And Rockefeller answered, my next million. Uh, Ted Turner was once asked how much more he would need to feel rich. And he answered, I would need a dollar more than I have right now. See, this is about, uh, and this isn't even about John Rockefeller or Ted Turner. This is about your heart and my heart. That's what that conversation is about. And then look at verse 11. He says, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Now, what the teacher is saying here is that the more money that you make, the more leeches that are going to line up, get in line to get a piece of what you have. That's what he's saying. In other words, there's going to be creditors, there's going to be banks, there's going to be family, there's going to be friends, there's going to be former spouses, there's going to be the IRS, there's going to be consultants, there's going to be managers, there's going to be attorneys, and the list just goes on and on. And he's arguing that even though wealthy people have lots of stuff, they don't get to enjoy all of their stuff because of the line of people that line up to collect their piece of the pie. And then look at verse 12. 
He says this, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now here, he's just literally saying, hoarded wealth won't let you sleep at night. And he argues from the perspective of a laborer, somebody that works hard, maybe doesn't even make a lot of money. He says, look, he's not going to have any problem sleeping well because his job demands a lot of him physically, right? But the rich person's appetite for more and aversion to loss won't let him sleep at all at night. In other words, he's saying this, the, the rich have to lie awake at night worrying and fretting over things like the stock market and the economy or the next business deal, and they fret about investments that could go bad or deals that could evaporate. What he's saying is this, they can't sleep well because they are either lying awake obsessed with getting more, the next deal, the next venture, or they're worried about losing and protecting what they have. And then look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept. There's the word. That word keep means hoarded or amassed or stored or accumulated by their owner to his hurt. Now, the first thing the teacher does is he takes us back to life under the sun, right? Which calls us all back to the fall, to the knowledge that we live in a broken world filled with broken people. And part of the brokenness of this world and of the human heart, is that when we make the accumulation of wealth the ultimate things in our lives, we do so to our own loss, our own hurt. So, for example, our workaholism may hurt our family or even our health, or our obsession with getting more can even damage our own soul, right? So let me give you an example of this. I read an article this week called What Wealth Does to Your Soul. And in that article, the author makes the case that those who make lots of money are often more willing to be dishonest. They're more, dis, uh, they're more um, uh, self-centered than most people, and they become actually not more caring of others, but less caring of others. He actually cites studies that reveal that the wealthy are more likely to cut off other drivers, not give pedestrians the right of way. And he points out that that the wealthy give a far less percentage of their income to charity than those in the middle class. And then look what he says in verse 14. He says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And to make matters worse, he's the father of a son, but he has nothing to nothing in his hand to give to his son. Here's what he's here's the point that, that the teacher's making. He's saying, look, Hoarded wealth evaporates. It abandons you. You can't take it with you. Hoarded wealth is at best temporary. If you don't lose it in a bad venture or a bad deal or a bad market, 
uh, you're certainly going to lose it to death. And we'll get there in a minute. And he doesn't give us any specifics about this man, right? He just calls it a bad venture. It could have been an economic recession. It could have been a real estate collapse. It could have been a speculative venture that went south. It could have been a stock market collapse. We don't know, but we know that one day he had this money and the next day it was gone. Anybody remember 2007? That was a tough year, right? For the stock markets. And in 2008, right after the stock market bubble burst, the New York Times did a piece on former, the former CEO of AIG, a guy by the name of Maurice Greensburg. And this guy went to work that morning, and by the time he went home that night, he lost 15 billion, not million. $15 billion of his net worth just evaporated. I mean, can you imagine a day like that? Hey, honey, how did your day go? Had a great lunch. Lost $15 billion. I mean, we can't even think in terms of numbers that big, right? Um, now, listen, most people, I mean, most of us in this room, right, we're never going to have a day like that. We're never going to lose even a billion dollars in the stock market. But there were a lot more people back in 2008 in just kind of an ordinary space. I mean, there were a lot of people that were carefully planning for their retirement, and those plans were interrupted. I mean, their finish line got pushed back because their wealth evaporated, right? There were people planning to put their children through college who suddenly had no idea how they were going to make that happen and do that. And here's what I want to point out. In times of recession or market fluctuation or a down market, uh, there's an emotion that rules the day, and that emotion is fear. Fear. And the reason that everybody panics in a down market or, or a recession is because it's in those times that this myth of security in our resources gets exposed. Right? And all of a sudden, we realize we're vulnerable all the time. Our lives are hanging by a thread all the time. But we become aware of our, of our vulnerability in ways that we're not when times are good and things are plentiful. Now, usually, we can live with that illusion of security. But in a market downturn, we're forced to face the truth. And you know what people do? They freak out. Did you know that statistics say, I mean, professional football players, right? They make a ton of money. But do you know what the stats say? They say that within two years of leaving the ranks of professional football, 78% of those players are either bankrupt or in some form of financial distress. It's just saying, look, your money can can fly away as if it took wings, right? And the problem is even exacerbated here in Ecclesiastes 5 because this man has a family to provide for and he has nothing left to support his family or his heirs. And he says that even though if this man, even though if he'd been able to keep his fortune, if he'd invested in a good venture instead of a bad one, he would still have to leave it behind. Look what he says in verses 15 and 16. 
As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Here's what he's simply acknowledging. He's simply acknowledging that that every one of us in this room, we brought nothing into this world and we we can't take anything out of it either. In other words, if we don't lose our money in a bad venture, we are certainly going to lose it to death. And and we know this. You never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul or a trailer, right? In fact, when Steve Jobs... Uh, founder and president of Apple, died in 2012. He had a fortune of over $10.2 billion. Do you know how much of that he got to take with him when he died? Yeah, you know the answer, don't you? Nothing. Listen, I'm going to give you, Solomon wants to give us today the best investment advice you will ever receive. And you're not going to hear it from Warren Buffett. You're not going to hear it from anybody else. And here it is. You ready? You are going to die. Every one of us in this room. When he says later that every man and woman, it would be good if they could accept their lot in life, in verse 19, that's what he's talking about. Just remembering that one day you are going to die, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. And all the money in the world is not going to change that. So do not buy the myth that enough money can make you secure, more secure than you are right now. In other words, here's what I'm telling you. You have to build your life on something more substantial than that, more eternal uh, than that. In fact, one of the minor themes of the book of, of Ecclesiastes isn't just that you have to die and pass your wealth on to someone else, but Solomon laments over and over again the problem of leaving your wealth to children who won't value it like you did and certainly didn't work for it like you did. So in other words, you save, you work hard, but your children may blow through all that hard work with an inflated sense of entitlement. Though you may have saved and stored it wisely, they could just spend it foolishly. In fact, way back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, the teacher just lamented the, the futility of leaving a large inheritance to children who will never appreciate it and probably even squander it. In fact, studies bear this out. Did you know that 60% of families with inherited wealth waste away that wealth by the end of the second generation? By the end of the third generation, 90% of families have nothing left from their original inheritance. uh, Most of you have probably heard this word, but there are a group of psychologists who actually specialize in working with children of wealth, children who grew up in wealthy, wealthy families. And there's actually a name that psychologists have 
have uh, come up with for that. There's a, 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 a diagnosis, it's called affluenza. Not influenza, affluenza. Uh, a pro- the unique problems that children face who grow up in wealthy families. And uh, these re- researchers describe symptoms of affluenza as uh, things like entitlement, a lack of gratitude, an inability to empathize with other people, and superiority, prideful superiority over other people. They just look down on everybody else even though they were given everything they have. So uh, this is what causes Solomon to say what he says next in verse 17. Moreover, all his days, the rich or the, the man with hoarded wealth eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Here's what he's arguing here. He's arguing that wealth can't guarantee you happiness. It can't make you happy. You can have lots of money, but no friends. You can be rich and still suffer from poor health. You can have a vast amount of resources, large resources, but a very, very small, cold, shriveled heart. You can have plenty to fall back on and still lie awake at night worrying how you're going to get through tomorrow. And then there's something else to just note here, make mention of. Being rich does not automatically mean richer and deeper relationships. In fact, with wealth comes a healthy dose of suspicion when it comes to relationships. In other words, well, do they love me for me or do they just love me for what I have? Do they want to be my friend because they want to be close to me Or do they want to be my friend because they want something from me? See, you can never know. You can never know. So here's what I want to do. I want to wrap all this up as we move to Solomon's confusion and just start to tie everything together by walking you through a study they did at a very, very famous business school And they use the case study approach to education. In fact, this is an Ivy League school. The best and the brightest go uh, to this school, right? And so when their professors do a case study of a business or a corporation, they always ask the same question. They look at all the fundamentals of the corporation. They look at how that corporation's behaved in its most recent season, and they ask the the students this question. Okay, students, tell us, in light of the culture of this corporation, is fear in the driver's seat or is greed in the driver's seat? Now, here's what's interesting to me. Fear and greed. Those are the only two options in this world. These are the only two. He doesn't, what's so interesting to me about that question is he doesn't offer another, another scenario, another idea, right? It's either fear or greed. So it works like this. The idea is that when things are going well, when all the charts are up and to the right, 
then greed is in the driver's seat, right? Because the upside outweighs the risk. And so this company or corporation or family or person is going to do everything they can in that seat to get more. That's greed. So uh, when greed is winning, we feel secure. We feel in charge. Now, it's an illusion, but we at least feel secure. But then if things turn around, if things start to go badly, if the economy, you know, turns upside down, then everybody panics and fear is in the driver's seat, right? Now, here's, here's what's so interesting to me. Um, God says, no, there's another option. There doesn't have to be fear, and there doesn't have to be greed. And that's why what Solomon says next is so, so important. Look at verse uh, 19. Look at what the teacher says to us. He says, Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. So I want you to take note here, God gives two gifts. We're going to come back to that. And then accepts his lot. In other words, remembers he's one day going to die and rejoices in his work. This is the gift of God. Now, this, this is a game changer. He's saying, look, it is God that gives you wealth. It is God. Wealth is a gift from him. And when you remember that, it it creates a third option. There doesn't have to be fear and there doesn't have to be greed. There can be gratitude. Gratitude. Thank you, God, for what you've done in my life. Thank you, God, for how you've blessed me and the resources that you've given me. God says, no, look, fear and greed are things of this world. You can live higher. You can live better. You can live differently. You can recognize that your wealth is a gift from God and be grateful to him for that. God, and here's something else that's so incredible he's saying. He's saying not only does God give wealth, but he gives us the ability to enjoy that wealth. In other words, and we know this, you can be wealthy and still be miserable. You can be wealthy and still be really, really unhappy. So he's saying not only is wealth a gift from God, but even the ability to enjoy that wealth is also a gift from God. In other words, to be able to enjoy the things of this world are a result of God's grace and God's mercy. God gives wealth, but he also gives enjoyment. And then finally, when you see wealth as a gift, it makes you want to please God with that wealth, right? It makes you accountable to God for that wealth. When you recognize that... Um, you know, that God's in your finances, it eliminates fear and it should eliminate greed. You know why? Because you don't have to, you don't need to reach out and grab all that you can because your trust, your hope is in God first. He's your provider. He's the one that provides wealth. And so I just want to walk you through another antidote. So the antidote to fear and greed is gratitude. And then we build on that, and there's one more word. 
And Jesus is going to tell us it's generosity. It's generosity. In fact, um, in Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of a money manager who's going to be let go by his boss. He knows he's going to be fired. And so he knows he's not going to have the opportunity to manage his master's wealth anymore. So here's what he does. He goes to everybody that owes his master money, and he negotiates, he reduces all of their debts. And in doing so, he makes friends with these folks, right? And so that when his master fires him, he'll be able to go and work for one of them because they are so, so grateful. And one of the things that this story that Jesus tells makes so clear is that we play the part of the money manager and God is the employer. In other words, everything we are, everything we have is on loan to us from God. He's the ultimate owner I just get to manage it for 40 or 50 or 60 years. But then it all goes right back to him, right? Everything is God. This is what the teacher just told us as well in the book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to put it this way to help us kind of wrap our arms around it. How many of you, when you had a rental car, how many of you have ever waxed and washed that rental car? Why? Because you know it's not yours, right? You're not going to spend all your precious time washing and waxing a car that doesn't belong to you, friends. That is the antithesis of life with God. When we recognize that everything we have doesn't ultimately belong to us. It's a game changer. It is a game changer. Not only is there gratitude, but there's generosity. And here's how Jesus uh, finished. Here's, here was kind of his teaching point after telling that story in Luke 16. I tell you, this is Jesus talking, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, in other words, when you die, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little. Now, by the way, here, here's what Jesus is doing. He's contrasting the little bit of wealth you and I are given on this planet with the vast amount of wealth we will be given in heaven. So in other words, he would say of Steve Jobs, I mentioned Steve Jobs earlier, right? Hey, Steve, $10.2 billion sounds like a lot, but in comparison to the riches of heaven... That's just a little. So that's, what he's, that's how he's framing this. He's saying, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? It's a beautiful thing. And then look, uh, and he says, and if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, in other words, with God's property, who will give you property of your own in heaven? And then he makes a statement that Jesus was very fond of making. He said it multiple times. 
No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And you know the reason for that, why that's true? Because they both offer and promise many of the same things right? Money promises freedom. Money promises security. Now, it's an illusion. We've already discussed that. But nonetheless, money makes many of the same promises that God does. And so here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I want you to use your worldly wealth strategically in such a way so that when you die and go to heaven, People in heaven will welcome you there. They will applaud and celebrate the way that you invested that wealth into eternity. They will welcome you. In other words, let's just make this real practical. They will say things like this. Hey, do you remember when you gave to that Christian camp? I became a Christian at that camp. Hey, you remember when you gave to that missions organization? I became a Christian through that missions organization. You remember when you gave to that church? I gave my life to Christ at that church. Your giving helped change my eternal destiny. Thank you for taking Jesus seriously as it relates to how you use and invest your wealth. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, use worldly wealth to further the gospel. Invest your money in organizations that change people's eternities. Don't just give to charity. Give to organizations that make an eternal impact. Listen, saving the whales is awesome, but it won't change anybody's soul. I mean, when Jackie and I went to Alaska this past summer, we got to observe some humpback whales um, in, in the water kind of feeding together. It was awe-inspiring. They are beautiful, beautiful animals. But saving the whale, whales won't change anybody's destiny, eternal destiny. And Jesus is saying, look, invest in organizations that preach and teach the gospel. You know, be forward thinking. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's Jesus' point. And so what are the antidotes to fear and to greed? The antidotes are gratitude and generosity that flows out of a grateful heart. That's it. So, let me just close by asking you a few questions. Are you offering any of your wealth to God in a way that would cause you to be welcomed into the homes of those that you would meet in heaven? Where is your security? Where is your worth? What is it that makes you wealthy? When it comes to your money, is it just about fear or greed? 
Or is it about gratitude and generosity? That's where Jesus needs and wants and calls our hearts to be. So let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we just, uh, help us take you seriously today. God, you know, we get all wrapped up in excuses and why we, sh- why we can't and why we, why we won't. And, you know, God, just help us to just absorb this teaching, your words today, in a way that would make a difference, not just in our world, but in a way that would ripple out into eternity. God, change the way we think about investing and wealth. Um, And God, just do that by your word and by your spirit that lives and moves in us. And so I ask and pray this in the mighty name of the risen Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Hey, thank